Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey there. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and church planter. If you are a guest, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us and spending your Sunday uh, morning with us today. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn me to the book of James. That's where we're working at. We're going to continue our series, Bold Words from Jesus, Brother. And today, James is going to have some pretty bold words for us. So I need to pray, make sure everything's going to be all right. And so we'll pray, and then we're going to jump right into the Scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus, who loves us with a love that is unconditional, not depending upon our works, our efforts, or even the way that we present ourselves to you or for other people, but all because of your Son, Jesus, do we have right reconciling relationships both with you and with others. Lord, I I praise you for this church. God, everything that you are doing in this church, we, we love you and we love to see exactly what it is that you're doing, that you're bringing people from all different places, all different walks, all different backgrounds, and you are making us a family and you are calling us your sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, children of you. So Lord, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would empower us, to empower us to understand the scriptures, to rightly apply them so that it would be profitable and pleasing to you and for your glory and for the good of others. Lord, I thank you for all of this. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So when you were kids, did you ever play musical chairs? Anyone play musical chairs when you were kids? Okay, yeah, I had a third grade teacher and she loved to play musical chairs. Maybe it's because she didn't know what else she was doing. So she would pull, uh, she, would, she would put the chairs in the center of the room and she'd push all of the desks along the side and all the kids would line up and she'd play London Bridges and then we would play Musical chair. So here you go. Look, I got my chair. Now, here's, here's my chair. There it is. Now, when you're playing musical chairs, okay, what did you do? Right? You, you had one hand on the chair, and then you were looking at the person across from you. You wanted that chair. I have to have that chair. The goal of the game is to what? Get the chair. Like, I, I want that chair. And so she would start playing, and you're a little nervous. You're a little excited. You're a little anticipating. And you're walking around the chair. You're, you're eyeing everybody else. And when the music stops, what do you do? You get that chair. Whatever it takes, I got to have that chair. I want that chair. And so, so you, you die for the chair, and then you, you push a kid off on the ground, and you're like, ha-ha, you don't get the chair. And the kid's out, and the kid has to go sit on the floor. Normally, it's the skinny kid, right? I mean, let's just be honest. You just push the skinny kid off. You're like, I got the chair. Okay, how many of you, how many of you were the skinny kid? Yeah, the skinny kid. You're a little awkward, right? And you have to go, and you have to go sit on the floor. Ask Ashley, I said, um, did you ever win in musical chairs? She's like, no. I was like, oh, it's because you were the skinny kid, right? She's like, yeah. So like the skinny kid, they have to go and sit on the floor while everybody else gets to play, and they, they watch, and it's, it's a little awkward. Okay, now, now I was really good at musical chairs, Okay, like I had a system. Okay, I, I would keep one hand on the chair and I keep one eye on the teacher. And I, I could tell when the teacher was about to stop playing because she would, she would look at the students, she'd look at the chairs, she'd look at her piano, and when she stopped playing, boom, that was my shot. I have to get the chair. Now, how many of you played teams when it came to musical chairs? You're like, how could you play teams? It's kind of a single player game. I'll tell you how. Kids are evil. That's how. And so, and so you, would, you would partner together with your friends, and then you would try to do whatever it 
you could to knock the other kids out. I had a friend, his name was Jonathan. And in third grade, we, we would team up to play musical chairs. And there would be, you know, 10 kids, nine chairs. And then every time someone loses, you pull a chair out. And then whenever the music would stop playing, I would dive for my chair and be like, Jonathan, Jonathan, I got a chair right here. Kids, and it, push them down. Jonathan, come sit here. And so he would come in. We win, push the other kid out. Okay, take a chair away. All the way until there's two people in one chair. And it's, it's, it's cutthroat. It's intense, right? The, the goal is you still have to get the chair. And so, so now you're, you're, you're wanting the chair. You're fighting for the chair. The music teacher is playing, and she gets to a grand crescendo, and the music stops, and both kids dive headfirst for the chair, and the crowd cheers, and you lose. Okay, you got to go sit on the floor. You thought you were going to win in this illustration. No, there's no winners at redemption. And so you, you want to go sit on the floor, and you have, to, you have to watch everybody else. Okay, play. Okay, musical chairs, right? It was fun when we were kids. Okay, so, so I want you to think. Okay, I, we had a chair. Here's my chair. You have a chair. Okay, so let's just think about it. When you walked in today, did you have to put your name on your chair? No. Okay. When you walked in today, did you have to uh, fight somebody for that chair? No. Did you have to save that chair? No. Did you have to pay for that chair? No. Okay. When, when you walked in today, um, did you bully a kid to get that chair? If you did, we're calling the cops. Okay. So, so no, you didn't have to do it. So here's, here's the chair. There's your chair. It's probably uncomfortable, just like the chairs when you were kids. Okay. So I want you to think, what would it look like if we as a church played musical chairs? Okay, it was fun when we were kids, but what if we follow the same principles today as a church? What if whenever you walked in this morning, let's say that um, whenever you were five minutes early, okay, so, so then you get a chair. Let's say you were five minutes late, okay, you can sit on the floor. Let's say this is your home church and you come here every single week and you've gone through grow class and you're a member of a community group and you have a lot of friends here, okay, when you come in, hey, we got a chair just for you. Let's say this is your first time. You don't know anybody. Okay, well, you can, you can sit on the floor. No, no chair for you. What if when the band starts playing and, and, and some people, they, they lift their hands and they, they worship and they sing and they know the songs. Okay, good. Good. People who love to worship, they get a chair. Let's say you don't lift your hands and you don't know the words. Okay, well, then you can sit in the back with the Baptists because that's what they do too. So, um, or, or let's say when I start preaching, okay, when I start preaching, you're like, amen, pastor, great job. Thank you, appreciate it. Amen, pastor, great job. Okay, good, good. People who compliment the pastor get a chair. Okay, what if you forgot your Bible? Okay, well, you don't get a chair. Sorry, you can sit on the floor. What if whenever we start taking our tithes and offerings, every single week you tithe 10%. It's what the Lord requires. So you tithe your 10%. Great. Tithers get chairs. Let's say you give $5. Okay, thank you. You can sit in the back or you can sit on the floor. Okay, this is church. You know how this works, don't you? Like you have to act like us, think like us, behave like us. You need to be just like us. And when the music stops, if you don't know what to do, if you don't look like us, then, then you don't get the chair and you can sit on the floor. Would this bother you? Thank you. <laughs> Would this bother you? And here's, here's my question. Hey, why? Right, you, you thought it was fun when we were kids and we were playing a game, 
When we're playing musical chairs, oh, that's a lot of fun. You even laughed when I pushed a kid off the floor, right? And then now you're saying, oh, this, this troubles me that this would happen in the church. Why? What if the church played musical chairs when it came to our membership? Okay, well, let's read the Bible and see what Pastor James has to say. Here's what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers. And so he's talking to us collectively as a church. When he says brothers, he also includes the sisters. This is anyone who is a child of God, an heir to the kingdom of God. So James is speaking to us collectively as a church. He says, show no partiality. It's a big word. And that's the word we're going to be hammering all day today. Partiality means prejudice or preference or favoritism. Partiality. As you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. So, so think about this guy. He looks like he just walked out of a page of GQ magazine. Okay, he's sharp. He's a well-dressed man. You can tell this guy, whew, this guy's got a lot of money. Okay, he, he looks nice. He's got a shiny watch. He's got clean shoes on. When you see him, you're like, okay, yeah, that guy. That guy rich. Okay, so a rich man walks into your assembly. It's another word for church. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You can tell this guy probably doesn't have the same standard of living as the other man. One's rich and one's poor. And if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you come sit over here in a good place. We have reserved seating for rich people just like you. We have special chairs just for you because you are in the chair and we want you to sit here. We, we like having people like you sit here. You say to the rich man, okay, you sit here, but then you say to the poor man, you stand over there. You stand in the back. No, wait, how about you come and sit down at my feet? He says, okay, you're poor. Mm, you're, you're welcome here, but we don't want you to become a distraction. So why don't you do this? You can't worship with us because when you raise your hands, it's kind of a distraction. And then people see you and they're reminded about problems in the world. And so we don't like looking at poor people. So you can be here, but why don't you go sit in the back? No, wait, you know what? You can come sit up front, but you need to sit on the floor next to my feet. You know what? I'm, I'm fixing to preach. And as the pastor, whew, you know, I, I preach for at least 50 minutes, so I'm going to be a little tired. So why don't you sit here next to my feet, and I'll use you as a footrest. Does that bother you? Is that a problem? Okay. Some of you are like, oh, man. Here's what he says. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts. You say to the rich man that we really like people like you when we say to the poor man, get out of the way because we don't have room for people like you. Did you know this? I, I told this to the first gathering. They looked at me like I'm crazy. Did you know this? Rich people are better than poor people. Did you know that? Especially in the church. I mean, rich people, yeah, I mean, they tithe more because they have more money. They have more connections with other people. And so there's greater network and gain for a church if we have more rich people coming. Um, rich people have real estate, so they have, better, they have better finances spread all across the city. And rich people tend to have more Instagram followers. And so if we take enough pictures of them, then people think we're really special. You didn't know that? You didn't know that? When churches cater to rich people, churches just do better because rich people tend to be better. Right? Does that bother you? Huh, okay. James says, listen to me. So James is about to tell you something. 
This is a bold word. This is big. James is about to say something. You need to listen to me. You need to hear me. He's going to say something. And when I say this, you're not going to believe this. See, our world, we cater to rich people. That's all we do. Look at them. Look how special they are. I want to be like them. That's what our whole world and society is built on, catering to the wealthy. And so James is going to say, listen to me. This is very important. He says, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Sometimes people with nothing have to trust God in a way that people with everything may never know because he's the only thing that they have. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. James is saying, you're judging these people on the wrong side of the kingdom. These people aren't poor. They have a massive inheritance that they're storing up for them in heaven. You're looking at them based upon the wrong side of what God says about them. They have a massive inheritance waiting for them in heaven. This is where Jesus says that they store up their treasures in heaven where they're going to get a tenfold, a hundredfold re- reward on their inheritance. You're judging them based upon their external. God sees them based upon their eternal. This is wrong. The way that you are treating, they are heirs to the kingdom, which God has promised to those who what? He's promised to those who what? Does that mean, is it for the rich? Is that who the promise is for? Is it for the poor? Who's the promise for? Is the promise for people who look like you? Is the promise for people who think like you, act like you, speak like you, from the same country as you? Is it for rich people, poor people, white people, black people? Is it for Latinos or Asians? Is it for young or old? Is it for men or women? Who is the promise for? James says, those who love him. The promise is not dependent upon our external. The promise is dependent upon the eternal promises that God gives. But here is the problem, that you have dishonored the poor man. James is saying, what we're doing is wrong. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is disgusting. This is deplorable. This is not the way that a church is to operate. You are dishonoring the poor. And so think about it. James is like, if my dad, Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, was to walk into this church, you would make him sit in the back because he was poor. He was a rural blue-collar carpenter, swung a hammer in a small town, didn't make a lot of money. You would make Joseph sit in the back. If Mary, James' mother, Jesus' mother, was to come into this church, you would make her sit on the floor. Why? That's the Lord's mother. And you would make her sit on the floor. What would you do if my big brother Jesus was to walk into this church? Where would you sit Jesus? You wouldn't even let him in the door. You would check him at the door. Right? Jesus was poor. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but we worship a homeless man. That, that he, he lived his life. It says, the foxes have their dens, the birds have their nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He couldn't afford to pay his taxes. He couldn't afford to feed his friends. He couldn't even afford a tomb at the end of his life. So he had to borrow one from someone else. We worship a poor man. And if Jesus was to walk into this church, you would make him sit on the floor like a dog. Hey, does this bother you? James goes on and says, Here's three things. Are the rich not those who oppress you? Are they not the one who drags you into court? See, let me pause here because this is very important. Not all rich people are evil. 
Okay, we talked about this several weeks ago. I gave you the four quadrants of wealth when it comes to God's word. And that there are unrighteous rich people who oppress and oppose by using their, their privilege and wealth. Then there are unrighteous poor people who waste their opportunities through sin and through foolishness. And then you have the, the righteous rich. So these are the people who love the Lord, who invest well, steward well. And because they're faithful, God continues to bless them. And so you can be righteous and you can be rich. But here James is talking about the unrighteous rich. These are men who use their wealth in ways that do not glorify the Lord, but glory in themselves. They use their wealth to oppress others to raise their own standard. James says, these men are oppressing you. And and then you're bringing them into the church while they are dragging you into court. And he says, are these not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is saying, listen, you have non-Christians in the church parading around, pretending to be Christians, using the church's money, using and abusing and oppressing other people who love Jesus. And when they walk into the church, you give them the microphone. And you put them on the stage and you want everybody to look at them and then you take pictures of them and then you put it on social media and say, hey, look, everybody, who goes to our church, right? Look how special we are. Look how great we are because we have them in our congregation. Jesus is like, these men are like Judas. They hold the money for the church, but they crucify the Lord and you put them on the stage. Oh, how much we long to be accepted by the ways of the world. And James says, this is not right. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is, this is wrong. But but here's the question. Why? Why does this bother any of us? See, we thought it was fun when we were kids to want the chair. That's all we wanted was the chair. Some of you hearing this, you, you think automatically, you're like, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is wrong. Okay, this is, this is not right. People should be able to sit wherever they want. People should be able to have whatever it is that they want. People should be able to live their life however it is that they want. This is not fair. This is injustice. This is inequality. This is partiality. This is prejudice. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Okay, good, big college words. Okay, okay but why? Why? And immediately some of you get upset. But I want to ask you, on what basis for your argument can you make that claim of inequality? See, I, I happen to agree with you, but I, I just want to figure out how we're getting there. Okay, because if you come here and you're, you're not a Christian, okay, you, you do not believe in a God, but you subscribe to a purely evolutionary worldview, that there is no God, that we're just cells building a civilization, that everything comes from nothing, and that the strongest of a species survive while the weakest link die off, then you don't have a right to argue for inequality. It just just doesn't work that way. Because if you subscribe to a purely evolutionary worldview, again, not how we got here, but how we live currently, then that would say that, you know what? Sometimes the, the, the weak, they get eaten by the strong. Sometimes there's winners, sometimes there's losers, sometimes that's just the way that it happens. And so all of this is just natural selection according to church membership. Some people are just deserving of their chair because they've earned the chair. If you come here and you have more of a postmodern 
materialist worldview, philosophy, where you say there is no such thing as truth, there is no such thing as right or wrong. People kind of get to just paint with whatever colors they want, and they can just live however it is that they appease themselves. And so you hold to a postmodern materialist worldview that there is no truth. When you see something that you declare as unjust or evil, you're also making a truth claim that there is justice and there is good, nullifying your entire argument. So it cancels each other out. So you can't wave the moral flag. So please sit down and listen to the conscience that God gave you. And if you hear today and you say, all religions teach exactly the same thing, or maybe you come from another religious background, and you would say, this is inequality. I say, that's great. I agree with you, but how are we getting there? See, I know that as Christians, we believe that we don't earn the chair based on what we do, but what Christ has done. That, that all people are made in the image and likeness of God, that, that there is equality through our creation, there is equality through our depravity, there is equality in what Jesus saves us for. I, I get that. I agree with that. But how do you make that claim? Okay, because if you come from a, a, another religion, you believe that we earn our chair, that your works declare your righteousness presenting yourself before God. Okay, say, say Islam, right? In order for you to be declared righteous in Islam, you have to follow the seven pillars. Two of them require significant amounts of wealth. The giving of the alms and making a journey to Mecca. And at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe their God would allow you to have a chair. If you subscribe to a more Judaism religion, then you have to obey the 613 laws of the Torah and you have to be good in order to be declared righteous before God by your works being your sacrifice. Okay, so that says you, you, you earn your chair. If you, you say, oh, okay, okay, Eastern religions, okay? So in Eastern religion, you may be very poor indeed, but the way you pay God back is by your enlightenment and then reincarnating and paying God back for your karmic debt. And so if we interfere with the poor man, we're just, we're just breaking up his karmic debt retribution Payback. That's the reason why 85% of people in India are in extreme poverty because they're in a class, a caste system called worthless. Okay, every other religion says, you get what you pay for. You buy your seat. You earn your seat. You fight for it. You work for it. You get the seat. And some people, if they get the seat, it's because they're just better than other people. They're more evolved. They're more enlightened. And those people get the seat. See, this is what separates Christianity from every other major world religion. Every religion says, you get what you pay for. Christianity teaches something totally different. Okay, does, this, does this bother us? It, it really should. It should trouble us deeply. Now, here's what's happening in James Church. Okay, James Church, they are acting in a way that is more worldly than godly. They begin to act in a way to where, to where they think, okay, this is the way that it's supposed to be. This is the way that we can grow. This is the way we can reach more people. And then they begin to behave and act in a way that is more representative of the world's systems than that of the, the kingdom. Okay, let, let me explain how this works. Okay, in this life, there are two kingdoms. Okay, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is where Jesus rules and reigns with complete authority. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He judges. He, he serves. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower his believers. This is the kingdom of God. And then you have the kingdom of the world that lives counterintuitive 
the way it acts, the way it works, the way it thinks, the way it believes, the way that it behaves. Counterintuitive to the kingdom of heaven. And these two kingdoms in this life are in constant combat, collision, conflict. And right there in the middle of that tension is what is called the church. And that's, that's you and me. That's us here collectively and, and the people who belong to Jesus. We are the church. And we live in the middle. Okay, so, so we live as missionaries of heaven's mission in the middle of the world's systems. And, and so this is why Jesus says in John chapter 17, he says that we would be in the world, but not of the world, that we are to be heaven's ambassadors, heaven's missionaries, a dispatch of the kingdom of God here in the middle of the kingdom of the world. The problem is, though, is that James' church begins to behave in a way that's more worldly than godly. And subsequently, that's the problem that every church ever will face. And they say, if you want to be rich, okay, come here. If you want to be successful, come here. If you want to be powerful, then come here. Act like this, dress like this, pray like this, give this much money, follow these many leaders, and then God will give you whatever it is that you want because you earn your chair. That's wrong. But that still exists in the world today. Recently, I saw a megachurch pastor, I won't say his name, but he tweeted that if you... Uh, belong to Jesus, you will never be broke another day in your life. Okay, yeah, we, don't, we don't believe that. Like, that's not the way that this, that's not the way that this works. And, and so they begin to teach that Jesus loves rich people more than poor people. That God loves rich people more than poor people. And that the, the richer you are, the more God loves you, the more important you are. And if you are poor, well, then you're a problem in our church. So you need to go sit in the back. Okay, just so you know, this theology still exists today. You would think after 2,000 years we'd have moved past this, but it still exists today. It's just called prosperity theology. What prosperity theology would say is that the more, the more you give, the more you get, and material wealth and possessions are proof that God loves you more. Okay, that, that, that's wrong. It's godless. Not true. Now, some of you, you hear this and you're thinking, okay, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I, I know this. And so I, I think in the other direction, okay? It's not that rich people are, rich people are bad, and, but I happen to believe that poor people are, are good. And so I believe that God loves poor people more than, more than rich people, okay? And so I, I, I've been to college. I took some classes. I talked to my friends. I used to be in a punk band. So this is the way that I think, okay? That poor people are better than rich people. That poor people are closer to Jesus. This is called poverty theology. Okay, it's just as worldly and it's just as wrong. Just be honest, several years following Jesus in the beginning, I held to poverty theology and I've had to repent of that worldly way. Okay, but, but here's, here's what happens. Some people start to think, okay, well, who is it? Who's good? Who's bad? Who's right? Who's wrong? Okay, is it that the rich people are good and the poor people are bad? Or is it that poor people are good and rich people are bad. Everybody wants to know who gets to chair, who's right, who's wrong, right? Who's the good people, who's the bad people? And what you'll see, no matter where you turn on the news or on Facebook, or what other people say, the common cultural narrative is this, to paint the people who are like you as equals and the people who are unlike you as evil. That's the cultural narrative. And everybody wants to know who's good, who's bad, who is it? The Bible says everybody's bad. 
equality, right? That we are equal in our humanity and we are equal in our depravity. There's only two types of people. There's Jesus and then there's everybody else. And everybody says, who's good? There's two categories, Jesus and then us. Okay, that's, that's equality. And so people want to know who's good, who's bad. Jesus is good and we're all flawed. And so here's, here's what happens. If we, don't, if we don't understand this, who's good? You know, is it the rich or the good? Is it the poor that are bad? No, wait, we're going to change that. It's the poor that are good, and it's the rich that are bad. See, we never really address the problem. We just keep rearranging the chairs. The problem is partiality. We've, we've never dealt with our partiality. We're just moving people according to our preferences. And sometimes our preferences can become our prejudices. If we don't get this, then we're still playing musical chairs. All the rich people come sit up front. Nope, let's change that. Rich people go sit in the back. All the poor people, you come sit up front. Nope, wait, that's wrong. James says, no, that's not the way it works. We're not going to show preference to anybody. This problem is in the church. This problem is in the world. This problem is in our hearts. And this problem in James Church is primarily over money, wealth, resources, income. But really, this problem is much bigger than that. And so I feel compelled to be able to do this because John Piper did it, and so I feel like I can do it too. This does not only apply to our income. This applies to everything. Okay, what about gender? Say, okay, all the men come sit up front. Nope, that's wrong. All the women come sit up front, and all the men come sit in the back. What about age? Okay, all the old people come sit up front. Nope, wait, let's change that. Old people, you go to the back. All the, the young people, you come sit up front. Uh, what about singles? Okay, all the singles come sit up front. Okay, uh, no, wait, let's change that. Married couples up in the front. Singles, you can sit in the back. What about with race? Say, all the white people come sit up front. Nope, that's wrong. Okay, white people go sit in the back. All the people of color, you come, you come sit up front. See how this works? James says, this is not how a church is. This may be how the world thinks, but this is not the way that a church thinks. We've never really addressed the problem. All we've done is rearrange the chairs. And we're still in the same predicament. James says, no, we're not going to show favoritism to people like you. It's where if people come like you and they're like, okay, here's a nice seat for you. Here's attention. Here's, here, here's, here, here's, we want you here. Here's respect. Here's love. Here's value. We're going to serve you because you look like us. And then we're going to disregard people who are unlike us. James says, no, if that's the way you think, listen to me, listen to me. James says, if you think that you are evil. Become judges with evil thoughts. If I, if I haven't hit a nerve yet, okay, let's, let's see what James actually says. Here's five problems with partiality. Okay, it's not just, it's not just, oh, I'm a little bit partial. No, this is favoritism. This is racism. This is sexism. This is ageism. This is classism. This is every ism and schism that brings division. 
It's not just partiality. It's much deeper than that. So here's five problems when it comes to partiality. First is partiality contradicts your faith in Jesus. Say, Jesus, I trust you. I know you. I love you. I believe in you. I give you my whole heart. But those people, no way. Contradicts your faith in Jesus. He says, partiality exposes your evil heart. You become a judge with evil thoughts. Okay, God, I, I know that, that you love people and you judge people and you're the good king and you, you welcome people, but I'm going to judge them because I'm a greater God than you and I believe that they're not worthy. You become judges of your distinctions. He says, partiality opposes God's sovereignty in election. God, I know that you save, not depending on what people do or what they look like, what they act. And I'm so thankful that you saved me, but they don't deserve your love. Look at them. Have you seen them? Have you seen the things? They, have you seen the way they look? Have you seen where they're from? It opposes God's sovereignty in whom he chooses as elect. Therefore, it dishonors people as God's image bearers. All people are made in the image and likeness of God, except for those people. Half. Half image of God, half animal. Half image of God, half unworthy. At least they're not like me. But it says that, verse 7, that partiality reveals what kingdom you truly belong to. You think like the world, you act like the world, you want to be like the world, you want to be impressed by the world, you want the world to love you that you reveal you do not belong to the kingdom of God. That you wear a reversible jersey, that when you're surrounded with your friends or in your nice comfortable place, you have, you have the kingdom of the world on, but when you come into the church, when you walk into the church, you flip your jersey around and you're like, I'm the kingdom of God. No, you're not. If you have partiality, evil, but let's just be honest with ourselves for a sec. How many of us in our everyday life intentionally surround ourselves with people who are unlike us? How many of us in our everyday life, when we see a group of people, we see those are like me, these are unlike me, and our heart gravitates to the people who are like us? Because when you see people like you, you think, okay, I can fit in there, I will be accepted there, I have something to gain from this relationship versus people who are unlike you. I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is a wrestle that all of us have, that we have to struggle against this. See, the problem of partiality is really not out there. The problem with partiality is really in here. How many of us wish more people like me got the chair? How many people wish more white people got the chair, more people of color got the chair, more young people got the chair, more old people got the chair, more singles got the chair, more rich people got the chair, more poor people, more married people, more poor people, more people like me would get the chair because when people like me get the chair, I have something to gain from it. Don't we all? Want the chair? Isn't that the point of the game? Isn't that how this all works? We have to fight for, want for, we got to try to get that chair. James says, that's not the way it works. Now, how many of you have been told that Christianity is a religion of inequality? 
You ever heard that? That not all people are made equal according to Christianity? Anybody? Okay, James would say, yeah, that's not the way it works. That's totally not. Let's, let's take a pop quiz, Redemption. Okay, pop quiz. Um, first question is this. <clears throat> all people are made in the image and likeness of God. True or false? True. There's not one, there's not one race. There's not one gender. There's not one nation. There's not even one sexual orientation to where someone is not made in the image and likeness of God. All people are made in the image and likeness of God. True. Second question is this. All people are equally fallen and sinful. True. Okay, there's not one person or place or type of people or race or income or ethnicity that is more sinful than anyone else. We're all have fallen short of God's glory and a standard. Equal. Equal in our humanity, equal in our depravity. And then number three, all people who belong to Jesus are equally loved, equally saved, equally forgiven, and redeemed and welcomed into the kingdom of God. True. All people. See, there is equality. There is equality in the Christian faith. And I would submit to you that the only way that we can truly argue for equality and diversity is from the Bible and within the local church. Because we have a worldview that sets it up as a demand for us to live our lives. Okay, when, when you hear this, you can think, oh, you know, it sounds like he's getting political. Okay, this is not a political issue. This is a gospel issue with political implications, okay? Listen, you might be new to redemption. You, you think, well, it sounds like he's trying to say something. Like, did he plan this? Okay, I can't plan this, just so you know. Okay, just so you know, um, if you're new here, I planned my sermon series a year in advance. Okay, so in January, I was like, okay, we're going to be doing James. And then in the month of July, I began to pray. And me and my wife, we went to, we went to um, a little vacation. And as I'm on vacation, I believe that the Holy Spirit was like, Byron, you have to preach John 17. I'm like, God, but I have this plan. And he's like, no, listen to me. You have to do this. And so, so I was like, okay, well, we're just going to push everything back. And we're going to do a vision series called Jesus Loves His Church. And we preached John chapter 17. And it was an amazing series and we loved it. Um, but it caused us to have to push everything back in James. So, so whenever we, we, we push it back, the first week back into James, we preached on the storms of life. And then we got a hurricane. You think, oh, that's convenient, right? And, and then the next week when we came back, we preached on overcoming trials. You're like, oh God, yeah, yes, convenient. And now this week, James is talking to us about what? Partiality and prejudice in the midst of everyone freaking out and losing their minds over white supremacists and NFL players taking a knee. Do you think we make this up? Okay, I think that God is trying to tell us something, that we need to listen. We need to listen to him. James says we need to be, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. 
God is trying to say something to us. God is trying to speak something to us and we need to listen to him. Not from what people say on the news or not what people say from Facebook or not what some person says in your friend group. We don't need to listen to them in that way. We need to listen to what God is trying to say to us. There is a major problem and the problem is partiality. And the problem is not just out there. The problem is here. And I, I know it's so tricky for some of you because you think, oh, that doesn't involve me. Oh, those people over there, they, they, that has nothing to do with me. No, it has everything to do with us. Because the natural inclination of the human heart is to distance yourself from people who bring attention to your problems. So let me, let me just say this. This happens here in our church. That the people who are being oppressed, people who are being marginalized, pushed to the edges of society, overlooked, they're sitting next to you in this room. Okay, this is, it's not out there. It's, it's also happening here. I'll start with my, my wife. Okay? I don't know if you guys know this or not. My wife is Korean. And she gave me permission to say this, and she told me, Growing up, my, my wife was asked, do you eat dog? That, that's, that's my wife. I had a conversation with someone, and they were telling me that um, it's not right for people to mix races. And I said, that's very offensive. I'm in an interracial relationship. And they said, okay, well, um, is she black? I said, no. I said, is she, she, she Mexican? I said, no. Said she's Asian, and they said Asian people don't count. This wasn't too long ago. Okay, I also know people in our church, right, who are afraid to put their address on a job application because when people see where they live, they won't get hired. I know women who have been overlooked for their jobs because of their age. I know of other women in our church who have been groped or grabbed many times. I know of one woman in our Song of Solomon series, she told me that on numerous occasions she has received full frontal nude images of men through her Facebook. And when asked why, he said, because I can do it. She's not even safe in her own home. This should trouble us deeply. This should bother us that there is such a problem to where there is inequality, to where there is injustice, to where there is partiality. And we should see this and our hearts should break. When we, when we see this, I want you to enter into the tension. I want you to feel this tension in the room. I want you to feel the tension that is happening in our nation. I want you to feel the tension that is happening in our culture. And I want you to enter into that tension. I want you to listen to what people are saying instead of trying to freak out and speak everything. You need to be slow to speak. You need to be quick to listen. And when we listen, we need to hear it from God's words and not your opinion. There is a massive problem. And the problem we have is partiality. It's still a problem. And partiality is not out there. Partiality is in here. It's in our hearts. So the problem being partiality, so what's God's solution? God's solution is 
not to give us more preference to feed our partiality. God's solution is instead to give us a promise. So God's going God's to give us a promise through, through James. And here, here's what James says. We didn't talk about verse 1. So let's go back and look at verse 1. Here's what he says. My brothers, it's a family. My brothers show no partiality. Here's a problem. As you hold to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What he's saying is, listen, as a church, we don't play favorites. Okay, we, are, we are brothers. We are sisters. That we have been adopted into the family of God. You don't get to pick your family. The Father does. And so you don't get to pick or choose who you want to be with, who you want to sit next to, who you want to look like. The Father brings us all together. And as you belong to Jesus, God the Father adopts us into a family, calls us brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, a church. And so so one idea I've been hammering this entire sermon series is this. God is a father and we are a family. It starts there with the understanding that God is a father and we are a family. Now, I was raised by my grandparents. Okay, I'm the oldest of six. And all of us at some point in our lives, we, we lived with my grandparents. And what I love so much about living with my grandparents is they didn't play favorites. They loved us all, treated us all equally. Um, we were different, uh, and, and, but they, they still treated us the same. And, and so as each one of us began to express interest or invest in certain areas of our life, they would take an interest in that area. And they would provide for, or they would, they, would, they would give to that area. So for me, I loved music, and I have a sister, and you know, she liked you know, ballet, and had another brother, he did skateboarding, and then another brother played basketball, another played, brother played video games. But no matter what our interest was, like, they would take the same interest in us. Okay, we were different but they treated us fairly. They treated us the same. I love that about them. Now, equality doesn't mean that everybody gets the same thing, but that everybody gets the same chance. And so I would be really upset if for Christmas they gave me a palette of makeup and some ballet shoes. I'd be like, uh, no thanks. And my grandfather's like, that's equality. I'm like, that's not, that's not very helpful. Okay, equality doesn't mean that everybody gets the same thing means that everybody gets the same chance. God is a father, and he loves us like a family in the same way. He takes interest in each one of us as his kids, and he provides for us, and he loves us, and he cares for us, and he gives to us, and he invites us in to be this amazing family. What would happen if I go over to my grandparents' house after church today, and he invites all of those kids back over and says, okay, kids, everyone come sit down at my table. Okay, Big spread, barbecue, good food laid out. Show me your bank account. Whoever has the most money in savings, right, you get, you get to eat with me, with the one with no money. Then you can sit on the floor and eat with the dogs. That's evil. And a lot of problems happen when the family starts playing favorites. Listen, if you forget one thing that I say today, I want you to remember this. God is a father and we are a family. And that we are to treat one another with the love and the affection that the father has shown us. That God is gracious, God is good, God is kind, and God is generous towards us as his children. 
And the way the Father loves you is the way the Father wants for you to love others. Okay? This, this is so important. Because some of you, you come from a family that's like this. You have to earn your chair. And you grew up your entire life wanting to earn the approval and the favor of a father, and you never got it. And you had to work for your chair. The more better I do, the harder I try, the better my grades are, the more I can perform, the more attention I receive from my father, and you never got it, and it broke you. And you began to look for another people in other places, and that day never came. I want you to know this. God is a father. He shows no partiality, and he always keeps his promises. He is good, he is kind, he is true. And we as a church are to reflect the Father heart of God to the city that we live in. That's the reason that when you walk into redemption today, we are to look like the kingdom of God and not just the kingdom of the world. That when you walk into the room today, you are sitting next to people, white people, next to black people, next to Latinos, next to Asians, young people sitting next to old people, and rich people sitting next to poor people, and singles sitting next to married and skinny jeans sitting next to cargo shorts. Like, we need everyone if we are to look like the family of God. Redemption, let us not be a church that acts like or thinks like or behaves like the ways of this world. Let us be a church that reflects the Father heart of God because you're not going to get this equality anywhere but from the Bible. And you're not going to get genuine diversity from anywhere but in the local church. You're not going to get it at a restaurant. You're not going to get it at a bar. You're not going to get it in your friend's group. You're not going to get it in college. You're not going to get it in your workplace because all of your life you think, that's where you go? Me too. That's where you hang out? Me too. Those are the bands you listen to? Me too. Those are your friends? Me too. This is the way you look? Me too. All of your life is me too. But in the church, it's not about people becoming like you. The church is about people becoming like Jesus. And so he starts off by saying, we are family, and you don't get to pick your family. God does. And so this whole time, we've been playing what? Musical chairs, right? So, so here's, here's your chair. You got your chair? Here's your chair. I want the chair. I need that chair. That's the whole purpose of the game. So what, is, what does the chair ultimately represent? Ultimately, the chair represents my identity, The chair represents my potential. The chair represents my accolades. People see me in the chair, they think I'm very special. We want the chair. Ultimately, the chair represents our glory. I want the chair. I need the chair. I have to have the chair. I get people like me to get the chair. I have something to gain when I get the chair. I want that chair because the chair is my glory. James says, who does the chair belong to? Verse 1. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He gets the chair. And so all of our life, we've been fighting for the chair. I want the chair. I need the chair. I have to have the chair. The most important question, the most important chair, who gets the chair? Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. And Jesus gets the chair. James says, no. When you walk in, it's not to have people like you or to think you're special or to think you're great or to give you you praise or to prop you up. James says, no. That's not the point of the church. This is not a game. And and we're not going to treat you special and we're not going to act like that this is just a game to you. James says, at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, when the music stops, Jesus gets that chair. 
because he's the only one worthy of glory. You're the wrong place for the glory. The word glory means weightiness, prominence, preeminence, of most and first importance. And the people who chase after glory are crushed by their search for glory. You cannot, will not have the glory. That's not the way it works, and that's not the way that you were made. The purpose of the chair is that Jesus gets that chair. If you, if you open up your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation there is many images. A man named Charles Spurgeon, they call him the Prince of Preachers. He's probably the, the greatest at using these illustrations of, of, of images through the Bible. And what you'll notice is that in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, when you open it up, there's a garden. Well, if you flash forward to the New Testament, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And then you, you'll see that there's also a, a dove uh, in Genesis 6 with, with Noah. And then you'll see that there's also dove with Genesis, uh, with, in the Gospels, when Jesus is baptized. And, and he'll say, you know, there's the wilderness with, with Moses and the Exodus. And then there's the wilderness with Jesus being tempted by Satan. But there's no image that is more prevalent throughout each page of the Bible than an image of a throne. Now, what is a throne? But a chair. And that all throughout the scriptures, Men, godless, wicked men, have ruled and reigned and oppressed other people from their chairs, from their thrones. You have men in Genesis like Pharaoh and Joseph, and you have men in Exodus like Pharaoh and Moses, and you have men like the kings who oppressed and ruled and were tyrants and evil, wicked men. And then you have men in the New Testament like, like Herod and, and Caesar and Nero who just oppressed people because they wanted their glory. There's one image through the Bible, and it's that of a throne. And for years, all of the problem, all of the wars, all of the injustice that has been fought since the very beginning is because men have sought after a glory that did not belong to them. All of the war, all of the injustice, all of the racism, all of the sexism, all of it is because we want a glory that does not belong to us. I want my chair. I want more people like me, to think like me, to act like me. I want more glory for me. All I want, all I need, all I hope is that I get that chair. And when you flip to the book of Revelation, the throne, the chair, it appears dozens of times on every single page. You can't read Revelation without seeing a chair. And when the, cult, when the, when the curtains of time are pulled back and you're able to look into the glorious future and all of history is unveiled, at the end of this world, at the end of your life, at the end of the time, when all of the music stops, there's only one chair. There's only one person. There's only one left standing. There's only one person remaining, and that is Jesus Christ. And when we look forward into eternity past, the purpose of this life, the purpose of your life, the purpose of heaven is not that you get a chair or that people look at you and think how special you are and more people like you, more glory for you. The purpose of the Bible, when you read it, is not that you would get a chair, but that when Jesus walks in the room, everybody gets off their chair. And we bow down before him. And we worship him. And we sing to him. And when we are gathered around Jesus, 
Every tribe and every tongue and every nation is present there worshiping Jesus Christ because he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and he is the one who rules with a good heart as a good king and as a good judge. And when we surround him, angels are worshiping him and the angels cry out, holy, holy, worthy, worthy, glory, glory. And every person who has lived before us, who belonged to Jesus, the saints of the Old Testament, the saints of the New, and the family who has gone on before us, they cry out to him, holy, holy. And the kings and the queens, they take off their crowns and they lay them at the foot of Jesus. And they sing, holy, holy. And the blood of the martyrs who have been oppressed before us, that it surrounds the foot of the throne and they, they cry out to him and we sing out to him and we praise him from eternity of all power and all glory and all promise. It only comes from and belongs to him. And it does not matter where I sit because in his presence, I will not be seated. Redemption, the sooner that you learn to give up your chair, is the sooner you will experience the glory of God. And when we see people, not as problems, but promises, that God loves, that God serves, that God calls, and God has sent us, the sooner we will begin to understand the promise that he has, that we are brothers and sisters, heirs to the kingdom of God. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 930 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.